Let's pray. We give thanks to you, Father, for you are good. For we know that your steadfast love endures forever. Father, you have redeemed us from trouble and gathered your people from all nations. We sat in darkness and in the shadow of death because of the rebellion of our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for the rebellion that still clings so closely. But the good news of your word is that in your steadfast love, you broke the bonds of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. All glory and honor and praise are yours this morning and every morning. Thank you for calling us to yourself and calling us to gather here this morning in praise to you. Please let us be that compelling new covenant community that we have been called to be. We pray for those among us that they would see your spirit within us and be drawn to you because of the love we have for one another. This morning we want to pray that your gospel would continue to extend to the ends of the earth. We thank you for the faithful missionaries and indigenous pastors and church planners that are carrying your word to places that are still in darkness. We pray that you would empower and encourage them and open doors to new people groups so that the truth of your word would come to pass and that you would truly be the Lord over all nations, tribes, and tongues. We especially pray for our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso and our friends Marcel and Pauline Yanogo. We pray for protection and favor and empowerment as they train up faithful pastors to reach the edges of Burkina Faso. We also pray for our brother and sister Jeremy and Jody Taves in Indonesia. We pray for safety and covering and provision as they meet many needs in their service for Mission Aviation Fellowship and ultimately for you. Please watch over their children and draw them to yourself as they serve with their mom and dad. And we give you thanks that we have our brother and sister in Christ from India with us this morning. We pray that you would use the time that we have with Pastor Bush Thomas and his wife Chandra after our gathering to open our eyes to your global kingdom reign and to help us see your glory in the midst of the church in India. Please be with them in their travels and in their ministry to family and the local church in India. Father God, we know that you love your church so very much. And so we also lift up in prayer any churches in our area or in the region that are struggling this morning. Whether it be struggling because of internal strife or due to difficulty recovering from the last two and a half years, please give those congregations and pastors extra joy as they strive to make your gospel known. When we encounter any difficulty, we know that you are the Lord of all comfort, comforting us in our affliction. And so we again come to you this morning to pray for those that are sick in our congregation or connected to members here. We continue to pray for Tyler Robison's nephew, Cole, as he undergoes medical tests, as well as for Tyler's father, Rich, as he undergoes treatment for cancer. We pray for Dave and Debbie Jacobson's grandson, Beck, in the midst of his treatment for cancer as well. And we pray for Professor Dr. Gary Bashirs from Western Seminary, a good friend of this church, as he also continues cancer treatment. In all these situations, Lord, we ask for miraculous healing, but even more so, we pray that your will would be done because we know that you are gracious and merciful and trustworthy. And for those struggling with common colds or other ailments in our church, we pray that they would see quick healing as well so that they might be able to resume fellowship with us. Please align our hearts with your own and give us the strength to journey through pain with the knowledge that you have conquered sickness and death. Please help us to reflect this sure truth as we have our moments of celebration and of heartbreak. And finally, Father, we wanna give thanks for your word. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, the word of our God, will stand forever. Let this be the case in our hearts this morning. 
Please soften our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might build our lives upon the rock of your truth and not the shifting sands of our own opinions or those of the world. Your word is truth. Please sanctify us now through our brother and pastor, Nick, as he opens up your word to us. We pray all of this in submission to the power and authority of your Son and our King, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Hans. It's a joy and a privilege to be here with each of you this morning. I look forward to our time in the Word together and do pray that it does minister to each of us in its own unique way that only God can do through His Word. Have you ever received a summons or gotten a call to come and see or come and experience? One December, I did receive such summons. It was to serve on a jury for jury duty. You know, as well as I did, that I had no option but to respond. There was no option. It was not an optional check yes or no whether you will RSVP. To ignore would have been guilty of breaking the law. And unfortunately, it was right over Christmas, like leading right up to Christmas. And so there I was, serving jury duty Christmas Eve day. Maybe you haven't received a jury summons, but we as humans recognize the importance of receiving a proclamation. Our Portland house sat on a normal city street right across from a normal city park. The park was large enough and our kids would play in the park. The front of the window would look right out into this park and we could observe them playing. But it was a large enough park that they would not be able to hear us if we yelled. So we ended up getting a dinner bell, partly as a prank, but also partly because nobody really wanted to miss dinner. It was a bell that let our kids know, and actually the whole neighborhood, (laughs) that we were having dinner, and it was time. Our neighbors loved us, thankfully, so it went over well. But to not respond would have been guilty. You would have been guilty, right? You would have brought hunger pains on yourself. One does not simply ignore the summons with the magnitude of dinner. If you think about your own life, there are probably times that you have received a call or a summons. And what you did with that dictated the consequences, whether they were good or bad. As we come to our text this morning in Revelation, I'd like you to contemplate one question, and that's going to be on the screen. How have I responded to God's call in my life? Take a minute and write that down. How have I responded to God's call in my life? We find ourselves in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 13. Last week, Tyler did a great job opening up the first five verses of this chapter. In these five verses, we see that the 144,000 who have been saved by God have also been given a new song to praise him with. They were free from the stains of this world and were as a pleasing offering to God. These saints have been set apart and sealed and marked by God. 
And so it is with that backdrop that we come to our text this morning. And honestly, our text this morning is a heavier one. It deals with a subject that is not very friendly, at least to our own hearts and ears. But I would encourage you not to tune out. I would encourage you not to find arguments against what we are going to read and meditate on. But ask the Lord what it is that he would show you through his word. Let's go ahead and read Revelation 14, verses 6 through 13. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is the word of the Lord. The the, the title of this sermon, and I think the, the big idea of this text, is our response to the gospel carries eternal consequences. Our response to the gospel carries eternal consequences. And this text breaks down nicely into three, three points. Those points are a message, a warning, and an encouragement. Feel free to write those down. A message, a warning, and an encouragement. Let's look first at verses 6 and 7 where we see a message. And just so our minds are fresh, let's read those once again. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. John, in his vision, looks and sees an angel flying over his head. Now, this angel, we see, has a message to proclaim to everyone on the earth. This is one of three angels that we'll see in our text this morning, and it's a little unique. These angels that we see today are different than ones we have seen before. 
these angels are not splitting the heavens, carrying bulls or seals or trumpets. Instead, they are flying over what would be called middle heaven, kind of like right over the head of John. And he, they are summoning, proclaiming that people should listen to them. And as we said a little bit earlier, the context of our text, of this passage, plays directly into the imagery. 144,000 people of God assembled, numbered. The imagery is, is right out of the Old Testament. It looks like they're ready for war. And what most commentators believe these angels are proclaiming is the message of the people of God. What they proclaim is what the message of the church is. It is the eternal gospel that is to be delivered, delivered to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this good news is to be carried around the world. Now, curiously, what we don't see in our text is a clear articulation of the gospel. We don't see that. Now, just so we're clear what the gospel is, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. That while God is good and, and created the world and man perfect, we sinned. Adam broke God's law. It was only through the work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, rising three days later, that you and I can be saved. Amen. That is the gospel. Amen. We don't see that here. We don't see that. We have seen it spelled out clearly, though, in, earlier, most recently, even in Revelation chapter 12. So what John is doing is saying, hey, look, there's implications for what that gospel should do. There are implications in the life of the church and in your life that should be carried out because of the gospel. And that's what we see here in 7 and 8, the implications of what the gospel should do in our lives. And the angel delivers a clear message. Believe in that gospel and live a life. Here's the implication. Live a life that glorifies the creator. Live a life that glorifies the creator of the world. And why should we do this? The angel continues in verse 7. Because his judgment is here. God is judging sin. And this is the message that should go to the entire world and result in the fear of God. This is what the good news does, is it works its way into our life, into our heart. The result is that we fear God more and more. Why? Because it is in the face of God's judgment that the fear of God grows. The glory of God grows as we understand, grow in our understanding of this world and as we grow in our understanding of who he is. We live in a day and age where we as people long for a clear message, right? We long for meaning. We long for purpose. Look, I mean, just look at social media. As quickly as a story breaks, whether it's true or not, we are quick to click the share button, right? Just share that message. We are happy to be messengers when it fits our narrative and we deem it appropriate. Now, even if you aren't on social media, our tendency is towards this. We want to be truth warriors. We want to tell people 
right? Right and wrong, good and bad. If only I can get them to see my side, right? If only I could win them over, I have a message for them. Revelation is telling us that the weapon of the army of God, what we have been armed with, isn't a sword or a gun or social media or earthly, earthly, worldly wisdom. The weapon of the people of God is the good news of God. Good news that changes lives. Good news that causes one to live in light of the fear of God, in light of his judgment. So verse 7 is this, an, an implication of the gospel. Gain the fear of God and give him glory. God's judgment is not only coming, but it has happened and it is happening. Through Jesus Christ, God judged sin. To proclaim this message clearly, we must understand this message. Now, we don't like talking about fearing God, and we also don't like talking about God's judgment. But Scripture is full of both of those. Look real briefly on the screen at just three texts right out of Proverbs, right? Proverbs 127, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 8:13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Proverbs 10:27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. So the Bible assumes that those who know God know him for who he is and they fear him in a healthy, respectful way. To believe the gospel is to know that God is to be feared. Not only does he have the right to judge sin, but he does judge sin. Now, this fear and judgment isn't of an unjust, abusive anger. It is the fear of the right and holy judge of the universe who has the authority to bring justice. For judgment is wholly deserved. Because we have broken God's law, because we have sinned, right? Adam and Eve, that's the, the, the basis of the gospel. Adam sinned and passed on that sin to us. We are destined to face the punishment of God. It's a hard truth. Whether we like it or not, we are destined to face that punishment. Now, some might and do object. Well, what, what gives right God the right to judge me? What gives God the right to judge this world? The end of verse 7 is the answer to that objection. God has the right to judge because he is the creator. He is not only able to judge, but is also able and worthy of our worship. The message of of the gospel, of the good news, is to not just respond in repentance, but to recognize that repentance means I'm going to reorient my life. My life is going to change. And I am going to not worship myself, but I'm going to give God the glory and worship him alone. Christian, this is what we have been saved to. And this is why we have been saved. Your salvation isn't a one-and-done trophy that you can put on the shelf and say, hey, I'm a Christian now, and just go your merry way. You have been saved for the purpose 
of giving God the glory and worshiping him. That is what our text is saying. There is so much that we could talk about in these verses and its implications in the life of our church and even in our own personal lives. But know this, we are then to proclaim that message to the world around us and to proclaim it with urgency. The gospel needs to be carried to every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is the message of the church. And this is the message of a Christian. The world is sitting under the judgment of God. Repent before it's too late. And this leads us then to the second point today. A warning. A warning. We see the warning in verses 8 through 11. Let me read those again for us. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives a mark or the mark of its name. In these verses now, we see two, two more angels. And these angels are bringing a warning. The warning is this. To not listen to the good news, to not listen to the gospel, brings eternal consequences. The first angel proclaims the destruction of Babylon as it has already taken place. Now, all of a sudden, we see this idea of Babylon being presented. Well, what do we do with this? In the coming weeks, we will be dealing more and more with Babylon. But just briefly, just so we're all clear on what we're dealing with today, Babylon was the capital city of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, you might also be familiar with Babylon because we spent time in Daniel. And that is where Daniel was uh, away as a captive. The authors of Scripture began using Babylon as a metaphor it was really just the antithesis of the city of God. It was the city of man, the city of wickedness, the city of idolatry and, as we see, sexual immorality. It represented all of the evil and the wickedness of the world. Jeremiah 51, 7 and 8 is a prime example of this. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine. Therefore, the nations went mad. Suddenly, Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she will be healed. Notice the parallels that we have in our text, even in Revelation. The idea of wine, of drinking the cup of Babylon, are both present in the text in Jeremiah and also in our text. In Revelation, Babylon here is pictured as a temptress who seduces the nations into sexual immorality. Having a glass of wine with her is making peace with the world. But, but the reality is that Babylon's already judged. 
the world and its systems have been judged as guilty in the eyes of God. It is a fallen and broken system. It cannot save. And it is the message of the church to, call, to say this, to speak this, and then to call the world to repentance. To, to call the world to turn from their hope and, their and the trust that they have in this broken system that has already been deemed as guilty. See, the world, Babylon, is calling people, it calls us, to engage in intimacy with it. The idea of sexual immorality is just intimacy. Like, intimate relationship with the world. But we must push back against this as the church. This falls under God's judgment. Sexual purity starts with and begins with fearing God. Keeping oneself free from the sins of the world must begin with a growing understanding of who God is. Do we want to see our children grow in, our, in their love for God and in the church? Teach them about him. Do we want to see ourselves grow in that? Spend time learning about who God is. The warning in the text is clear in verses 9 and 10. The third angel proclaims this. If you receive the mark of the beast, if you cuddle up with the world, make friends with it, you receive God's wrath, his judgment. Now, remember a few weeks ago, as Hans pointed out, that this mark wasn't a physical number or implant on your body. It isn't something that we will wear around and be able to show people. No, it's the temperature of one's heart that, that, that dictates whether or not you have received the mark of the beast. It is buying into the world's way of thinking and believing. And this stands in stark contrast to the mark of the people of God. The seal that he puts on his people for to participate with the world in its idolatry is to be an enemy of the people of God and an enemy of God himself. And then here in verse 10 of Revelation 14, we also see a very clear dis description of hell. What we see is that those who die in fellowship with the world, those who die with the world as, its, as their identity will spend eternity suffering under the wrath of God. Language like what we see here that is used to describe hell carries with it a lot of metaphors. Right? We use metaphorical speech in our language all the time. If I say my wife is a gem, what I'm communicating is her value. Because in fact, she's far greater, more, she's far more valuable than any precious gem. Scripture is doing the same thing. When, we, when, when it describes hell, this is bad, but it's going to be so much worse. We are getting a vivid picture of the intense torment and suffering and punishment that is going to be taking place under the wrath of God. Hell isn't something that we really enjoy talking about. We like to steer clear of it, right? God, religion, politics, and hell. <laughs> we don't really have conversations about it. But this, 
isn't, this really comes down to the heart of the problem. You and I have a problem with hell, partly because we don't like to think about punishment, but also because we really have a problem with biblical authority. I would rather not talk about this uncomfortable subject. We can also have a problem with hell because we are uncomfortable with the description of God being an angry God and pouring out wrath on people. I mean, how do we deal with the wrath of God when we live in a world that believes that God is love? I mean, how can a loving God punish people for eternity in anger? I mean, that just rubs us all the wrong ways. When we read about the wrath of God poured out or torment or burning or abandonment, we hear abuse, neglect. And unfortunately, there are many who have past trauma and are genuinely affected by this topic. But I have said, and I will say it again here, God is not like you and I. He's also not like our parents or our former acquaintances who use their powers in ways that were just that we're not just wrong, but we're irreconcilable with Scripture. See, God's anger is not a flash anger. It's not a flat, the flash of, a, of a, an angry father towards his children, but a slow, thoughtful, precise justice. Something that is reserved for only the guilty. See, the, the, the innocent will not be punished. When I discipline my children, I try to be just. I, I try to be right and fair. But far too often, and you could ask them, I would prefer you not, but you could ask <laughs> them that I do lose my anger or I do lose my cool and I get angry. And then, while I might have been right in disciplining them, I have to go back and ask for their forgiveness because of the anger that I exhibited was out of place. But this is not God. God is not like me. He is not moody. He is not temperamental. He is not interrupted by us and responds in anger because he was busy. He doesn't lash out and, and punish because he is in a bad mood. He is not unjust or unfair, and all that he does determine is right and good. In fact, look at Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So when we read about the wrath of God or, or his anger, we can know that what is taking place didn't happen overnight. It isn't quick. But, and it is also just, right, and true. God has arrived at this point after much opportunity for the offending party to repent. It might offend our Western sensibilities, right? God is love, but we can't argue with it. The pictures that we have of hell here in this text are similar pictures to the ones that we have of Jesus on the cross. Excruciating pain, torture, drinking the cup of God's wrath, right? Those are all used to describe Jesus and his death on, a, on the cross, Jesus endured the punishment of God as, as if he was in hell while he suffered and died on the cross. 
But unlike those who spend eternity dead, suffering under the wrath of God, Jesus got up from it, and he was victorious over sin and death. And if that doesn't warm your heart and give your skin chills, I don't know what will. Friend, through Christ, you too can have victory over sin and death. You do not have to spend eternity in hell, suffering under the wrath of God. Being being sealed by Jesus Christ means that you are his. And when death visits your doorstep, it isn't something to fear and be afraid of, but it's a victory that God has already won. God has already conquered death. For Jesus Christ suffered death on a cross so that you and I could have life. He died so that we could live. There is no greater hope than that. Sure, this world promises to fulfill us. It promises to meet our every wish, desire, and need. It calls us to be intimate with it. It even might seem right and easy. Look at Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Right? You might be walking in your life right now in the exact way that you think you're supposed to be, in all that you think is right. But if it isn't for the glory of God in response to the good news of God, its way leads to death. The reality of this, I think is clear in our text, should light us, give us a fire for evangelism. This is the, the truth that needs spread to the nations. The message, a warning, needs to travel to every tongue, tribe, and people group. It is for everyone, and we are those who are called to carry this message. We are called to warn people. There are people right now in your life who need to hear this message. God is calling you to take it to them. If you're like me, you have neighbors. You have parents of your children's friends. You have family members who all need to hear about the sad reality of hell. One does not need to be a missionary in a foreign country to do this and to walk in this obediently. One must simply be intentional. It's a word I love to use. Be intentional. Build relationships for the purpose of communicating the good news to them. Build relationships that are intentional. See, relationships can be uh, deceptive. It might be easy to make them. It might be hard to make them. It might feel natural. It might not feel natural. But once it happens, it's like, oh, this is wonderful. But what we forget as Christians is that we are called to build them intentionally for the purpose of warning them about the judgment of God. One, one great way to do this is to be hospitable, to open your home to strangers, to neighbors, and to build a relationship with them, to, to eat with them and to get to know them, and to then to be able to speak into their life the realities that we see here in Revelation to speak the good news that the judgment of God on sin has already taken place and death is no longer to be feared. So if you're a Christian, we are called, we are actually commanded to carry this message to the entire world. 
We are to speak of not only the judgment, but also the forgiveness that can be found in Jesus Christ. It is he, the Son of God, who gives rest to the weary. The burden of his death is heavy. The judgment, the reality of hell, is one that is burdensome. And carrying this burden is heavy. It's, as you know, it's not easy. Those who know that there is a judgment live as if they will be held accountable, and this is no small task, to live uprightly, righteously, in a world so filled with temptation. The world and our flesh are strong enemies. This, re this really is the highlight of these verses. Hell is not a place of rest, and we see this right in the middle of verse 11. Hell is not a place of rest. We are told that they will have no rest day or night. What an awful torment. Those sleepless nights with small children can wear on a person. They can make you question your sanity. This is what hell is times one million. Infinity. That feeling, as Bilbo Baggins says in Lord of the Rings, of butter scraped over too much bread. Thin. Worn out, and I'm sorry if you don't like Lord of the Rings, I do, so. <laughs> Thin, worn out, tired, tormented, and no rest. Sin leaves us restless, and that restlessness will continue for eternity. To never be satisfied, to never be at peace. Where does that leave us? This leads us with the final point in today, in these verses, in this, in this, in this section of verses in, uh, 12 and 13. An encouragement. We see an encouragement. Let's read together once again. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. While hell is reserved for those who have received the mark of the beast, the call, the call for those that are sealed by the Lamb is for endurance, to endure. Verse 12 is a transitionary sentence. It appears John is letting the reader know that what comes next is special. So pay attention to it because we have quotation marks. So it's somebody else's voice and we see that it's a voice from heaven. The voice of God states that there is a blessing for those who die in Christ, for those who die in the Lord. For why? They will find rest and their deeds will follow them. In verses 8 through 11, we see that we saw that there was a warning that those who participate in the world's system, who sell themselves out to intimacy with the world, are going to be judged. But here, what we see here is an encouragement that, that those who don't do that, who, who rely on Jesus, they will endure and it will be worth it. To endure is to live a life in faithful obedience to the commands of God. 
And as we contemplate what this looks like, we, we read it in the context with the preceding verses. To be unfaithful is to be drunk on the sexual immorality of the world. So to be faithful would look like being sober, clearly thinking about God and who he is and living a life in light of that truth. God has two simple commands for his people. I say simple, kind of tongue-in-cheek. They're actually really hard, but love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. That is what it looks like to walk in obedience to God. Everything else flows out of that. All of the commandments of God, all of the obedience to God, boil down to those two things. And yet, in our natural state, you and I do not keep the commandments of God. We are prone, inclined, and will not do this. We are far too quick to disobey. And so John gives us as the reader in Revelation some clarification. Not only are we to obey God's commandments, but we are also to keep our faith in Jesus. For those who die professing Jesus as God and exhibit that profession through faithfulness and obediently walking and following the commands of God are blessed. That is the path of blessing. If you're familiar with Scripture, just side note, that reminds me of Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. Notice what the promise is in verse 13, that they may find rest from their labors. Christian, ponder that for a moment. You will find rest. For eternity, there will be rest. We will no longer fight against temptation. We will no longer be asked to do the work that we are called to do in this life. Work that squeezes on things that might be more enjoyable, right? Thank you all for showing up on Sunday morning. The punishment for the unbeliever is unrest, but those in Jesus Christ will find peace for eternity. So in the meantime, we walk in obedience. Walking in obedience to Jesus in a world that calls us to disobedience. And it would be so much easier to throw off restraints, to not follow obediently after the things of God, to not commit to a church, to not show up on Sunday morning, to not love your neighbor, to you fill in the blank. To give in to the passions of our flesh can sound so satisfying and so easy. But as a Christian, we are called to obedience, and obedience is hard work. What's the promise? There will be rest. One day we will no longer work towards obedience and walking obediently. We will be at peace with the Lord. This idea of rest should be very familiar to us. It's the idea that we see throughout Scripture of the Sabbath. You see, all the way back at the beginning, on the seventh day of creation, God rested. Then, in the Garden of Eden, while there was work to do for Adam and Eve, it was not hard work. It was not as laborious as what we experience now. The curse of sin was that man would need to toil, and it would take blood, sweat, and tears just to put food on the table for his family. 
Now, by the Mosaic law, skip ahead, right, many years, rest began to be mandated. It was one of the Ten Commandments. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And for an agrarian society, like ancient Israel, rest would have been tough. It would have been one lost day caring for the food that they were growing. Right? It could have meant the difference between death and survival, between making it through the year or not for your family. But God wanted his people to know that their hope, the fruit of their labors, was in his sovereign, caring hands. For the people of God to put to rest was to put their hope in God and to remember him and to trust in him as they rested from their work. That he would care for them and that he would provide. And along along came Jesus, and he begins to then change the Jewish understanding of what rest actually is. It's not so much a physical one, though it includes some of that, but it's spiritual. And Tyler read this for us last week, and it fits in so nicely here, I thought we could just meditate on it again. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, it should be on the screen. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest was no longer a day, but a person. Jesus promises to take your burden. And by putting on his burden, a yoke, right? That's a burden. Your burden is actually lightened you will find rest. Jesus Christ promises to be the one who will give you that rest, the rest that your soul is longing for. And how does he do this? The greatest work that needed done, the greatest task ever in the history of humanity was accomplished by Jesus. He accomplished this work on the cross, and after completing that work, he now sits at the right hand of the Father and is resting from his labor as he rules. The promise is that all those who are in Christ will find his rest and are in his rest. And what we can see clearly in our text, but also in all of Revelation, is that in this life we will suffer. It's a promise. There will be persecution, there will be hatred, there will be struggles, there's temptation, attacks from Satan, inner turmoil, external turmoil. But through all of that, we are called to faithfully obey, and that is laborious work. But Christian, take heart. As difficult as living faithfully in this world is, through the Spirit of God that lives in you, you have the power to walk in faithful obedience. And this is the encouragement. Enduring isn't on you. Walk obediently. Walking obediently is effort. This is because it requires resting from the work that Jesus has already done. Our rest is ceasing, reminding ourselves to cease from the work that Jesus has already accomplished and to just be obedient to him. 
Hebrews 4.10 says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The good news is that you and I are free from practicing religion and free to rest in Jesus. This is where we will spend eternity. We will spend eternity in Christ, resting from the labors of this life. God will judge those who have taken the mark of this world, and they will spend eternity suffering punishment. God's judgment, though, will be based not on how good of a person you try to be, but it will be based on where you find peace in this life. Are you passionate about the, the, the rest that can be found in Christ? Or do you passionately pursue the false peace that this world offers? If only I could build something, if only I could do something, if only I could have this or participate in this, I would be happy. The rest that we actually have, truly have, in Jesus Christ is a rest that will last for eternity. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for uh, the rest that you have given us. The rest that you uh, gave us and accomplished through Christ on the cross. And we pray that we would find our hope, our peace, and our joy in that work. Amen.